Thank you, Steve, for that last hymn, which uh, is very relevant to our passage this morning. If you've got your Bibles, please open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll commence reading at verse 6, and we'll go right through to the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 to 16. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has seen and ear has not heard and which, we have, which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Trust God will add a blessing to his word. Someone once wrote or spake these words when they were concerned about disunity and division in the local church and the person said, and when illustrating this, he said this, a wall with loose bricks is no good. The bricks must be cemented together. I did some brickworks once. I made a wall or tried to. It was only a little wall around a fireplace. But soon after, the bricks became loose, making the whole structure totally useless. And so seeking counsel from a professional bricklayer he asked me what kind of bricks I was using and I was able to tell him and he says, don't you realise with those kind of bricks they need to be saturated and soaked in water first in order for the cement, the mortar to saturate and soak into the bricks so that the whole structure will stick together. You see, the Christians at the Corinthian church they were true believers But the problem was that they never allowed themselves to be soaked, 
filled, saturated in the wisdom of God's gospel so that they might be unified together as a local church. And like a wall with loose bricks, this church soon began to fall apart. Their reliance, this is what their problem was, their reliance on human reason was keeping them from drawing upon God's wisdom. The Corinthians, they were an amazing people. They were steeped in the philosophical teachings of their day and age. They were steeped in it. That's what their life was all about. But the problem was these people who got converted... They have had lots of baggage of this philosophical teaching that they brought into the church. This church that we're reading of, a letter to, had some loose bricks in its membership. Had some loose bricks in its membership. Because prideful human reasoning, what was it doing? It was eroding the divine cement, can I say, of Jesus Christ, hence the quarrels and divisions and strife soon erupted that we read of in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. So what Paul does here is he continues in his letter and addresses this damaging matter of disunity by again and continuing to, as we've already had the last couple of sessions, he continues to focus on the wisdom of God. He does this by clarifying, first of all, to whom he will address and then he speaks about what he will continue to address them about. And so he begins this in verse 6 by saying these words, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Now that's an interesting adjective there, among the mature, right? Or perfect you may have in your Bibles. The question we can ask that word is, does this word describe believers who are well advanced in biblical faith and practice or does it mean something else? Because when we use the word mature, we can sort of see, okay, that's an older person or, or whatever and, um, and, and so we'll just put that English understanding upon our modern context. The Greek word itself, talois, means something else. It means complete or perfect. New American Standard Bible and the ESV has the word mature. But this word also can be used in its Greek context for someone who has full membership of a group. It's a little bit of background on that word. But Paul uses this word here. He uses this word mature, this word perfect. It's in reference to a person's salvation or his or her acceptance of Jesus Christ by faith. In other words, the mature here is the genuine believer, whether they've been saved only for a week or been saved for half a century. They're described here as the mature. The redeemed, those who are redeemed by God and who truly belong to Jesus Christ. He speaks God's wisdom to the mature. Not only those who are advanced in the faith, but to those who are genuinely in the faith. And I trust you all are here this morning. And if not, you've got some serious thinking to do. 
But at the same time, when we think of that word mature, we must understand that like in any church today, as it was in Corinth, there would have been believers who were more established in the faith than others, right? Some would have had a better handle on truth. Some would have been a lot quicker to obey God's wisdom than others. And actually Paul deals with this in the next chapter, in chapter 3. So we're not going to go there. But that was also and is also something that we need to understand. But Paul here is addressing all believers. He's not addressing the unsaved people. He's not addressing those people who don't know Jesus Christ as Saviour. Because what have they done? What do they do? They reject the wisdom of God in the Gospel because it's either what? It's either a stumbling block we've read or it's either foolishness. And so they throw it out. They reject it. It won't have nothing to do with it. And we have that stated in verses chapter 1, verse 23. So here he speaks to those who believe, the mature, those who are made positionally perfect, mature in Christ by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So what this means is that believers then and believers today, what is the gospel? Sometimes, even as believers, we think the gospel is just that little bit of news about Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners who we've got to believe and trust in, and then we forget it. No, no, no. That is the little core and vitally important for us to understand and take on board into our hearts. But the gospel is the whole gamut of the scriptures. The teaching from Genesis to Revelation. Not only on how to become a Christian, but how to live as a Christian. That's the gospel. And so this is God's wisdom. And so it's the wisdom for salvation. It is also wisdom for our lives as believers every day. So Paul in this section, what he does is he makes two points already spoken of categorically clear. The first point that he makes is true wisdom from God is not discovered by human reason or understanding because like all else, it's ruined by the fall, right? It's ruined by the fall. So true wisdom by God, from God is not discovered by human reason or understanding. And the second point that he makes clear here, true wisdom from God is only divinely revealed. It's not discovered by whatever means that we have in our human ability. This is important for us to get to grips with, folks, because in our apologetical approach, I noticed that Karen used that word this morning, in our apologetical approach, that is the way in which we win people for Christ Many believers do not understand this fundamental truth and we need to. You see, we will not see people saved by our rational arguments or by some scientific evidence that we put forward when it leaves God and his word out of the equation. It won't work. All this does is allow people who want to understand life, understand the origin of life, understand where the world come from, where it's going to, the problems in the world. All this does when people ask the big questions of life, it puts them and allows them to be in an autonomous position. That is all by themselves and not including God in it. That's what it does. It allows them thinking 
that they are able with their fallen intellectual ability to work out if there is a God, if there's not a God, and if God is to be trusted or if he's not to be trusted. Now, man in his fallen intellectual ability, that's an absolute impossibility because he cannot gain entrance into the wisdom of God with something that is depraved and fallen. Folks, so we must start with God. We must always start with God. Of course we must discuss origin. There were opportunities, there was great opportunities when people, unsaved people, ask about the questions of life. Yes, discuss origin, discuss destiny, etc. But only as being, only as being a work of God because it's by bringing people face to face with God's wisdom, it's then that he can change people from within and transform them from within, from the heart. Nothing else will. All it will do is maybe stick a bandage over something or some issue or whatever. Okay, so let's get down to our text this morning. And the first point we're going to look at is God's wisdom. Who gets it? Okay, who gets it? And we see this is in verses um, 6 to 9 of our text that we read today. So having established that the mature are true believers, Paul then sets out to make sure the mature know that not all people are able to understand, accept or are capable of understanding God's wisdom as they have. He begins by to outline why it cannot be understood. And this is really difficult for some people to grasp. Why cannot it be understood? Before he expands on how it is understood in the next section, this is from 10 to 16. So firstly, God's wisdom completely transcends all ages of time into eternity, no matter what amount of human understanding or any leading philosophical rationale can penetrate that. Nothing can penetrate that. Okay? All your learning, all your intellect, all your ability to logically work things out cannot penetrate and understand the wisdom of God in the gospel. In other words, the best of the best of humanity's reasonings cannot and will not understand this wisdom. We see this at the end of verse 6 of our text. God's wisdom is way beyond and not understood by any of these totally inadequate human abilities. It's beyond our reach, so to speak. Pretty hopeless sort of situation, isn't it? But anyway, let's look, continue on. He also adds, Paul does in this letter, that this divine wisdom is a covert wisdom. It's a covert wisdom. Okay? That is... It's covert to humanity's intellect to understand its secrets. It's hidden. It's obscure. It's a wisdom that cannot be understood or seen by the natural man because it's a hidden mystery. Now, this word mystery, that doesn't mean that it's something that can be worked out, you know, uh, if we're given time to unravel it. No, no, no. It doesn't mean that kind of mystery. But this mystery is about truth from God that he intentionally holds back and is hidden and is veiled to the eyes of human reason and understanding. He hides it from that. He veils it from that. He keeps it from that. Not that it could work it out, but there's a blockage there. A little bit like the same way that Jesus, he spoke in parables for the disciples to understand and he, 
the others not to. They couldn't. Paul kind of says, now this is the wisdom I'm talking about. This is the kind of wisdom I'm talking about. This is the all-time and intellectually transcending divine wisdom that alone brings salvation to sinners. And then he goes on to say, this is the wisdom of God predestined. It's a predestined wisdom. That is, God predetermined before time, before the ages, far in eternity, so that those whom he would call to be saints would be divinely enabled to understand and apply the saving wisdom in their lives for glory in heaven. It's not some afterthought. It's not just something that grows with time or that grew with when Jesus Christ came to the earth. No, 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 no. This is a predestined wisdom. And we're talking about the gospel. We're talking about gospel truth. And we're talking about all of God's plan from mankind from beginning into eternity. Okay? It's predestined wisdom. But also, just in case the reader is not convinced and we may not be convinced... Paul goes on to say that God's wisdom is unknown by human wisdom and he gives proof here. He gives proof and I said, I'll show you proof. All human wisdom did and all human wisdom, the way it responded to God's wisdom was that it killed the Lord of glory. The people of, Jesus, of, of Paul's day or before Paul's day, Jesus' day, with all, with all their learning, these Pharisees and these, these scholars, they were the PhDs of this day. With all their learning and all their intellect and all their religious thought, all their rationale, etc., they willingly, but being blinded to the wisdom of God, you know what they did? They crucified the Lord of glory. That's how they responded. They did what they did because they could not what? They could not see, they could not hear, they could not even imagine in their own hearts what God has prepared for those who love them. They couldn't understand that. Why? Because all their human faculties fail. You would have noted that verse there, right? It's a quote from Isaiah. This verse here is well known, verse 9, is well known but sadly wrongly applied and many Christians wrongly apply this. This is not about the eternal wonders of heaven, this verse 9 here. No way. This verse has to do with human understanding's failure to comprehend God's saving wisdom in the gospel. That's what it is. The intellectuals of, of Jesus' day, they could not even imagine in their hearts what God had prepared for those who love him. But we can, right? As believers, we can. There's been some imagining going on already as we read the revelations, what we did this morning, Revelation 5, and, and, and we've been considering heaven. We're not told all the details about heaven, but our sanctified imagination knows that the Lord of glory is going to be there and that we're going to be with him. We can imagine it. But the unsaved can't. And because they couldn't, you know what they did? They killed the Saviour. 
That's exactly what people would do today if he was here. They do it in other ways, by rejecting him, away with him. We don't want this Jesus person. He's got nothing to do with my life, is the response from the unsaved person. Why? Why is that? What makes the unsaved so different from us who can imagine it and can look to glory? It's because they cannot understand the wisdom of God. It hasn't penetrated their hearts. And that's why we should feel for them. That's why we should be compassionately disposed towards them and teach them. But we're going to get onto that. We see that God's wisdom is God-given. We see this in verses 10 to 16. It's God-given. You can't get it yourself. You can't sit an exam for it. Even go to Bible college or theological seminary, they won't get it. It's given by God. You know, I often ask my wife, or I'm often asked by my wife, I should say, for me to, to share with her what I'm thinking. That's dangerous, right? <laughs> that's, that's dangerous. She wants to hear what's on my mind and uh, what I'm thinking about certain matters. Now, even though we've been married 40 years plus now, and are the greatest of friends, and, and this woman knows me like no one else does on earth. You know what? She still does not know every aspect and function of the real me. No way. She doesn't. In other words, she cannot read my mind, although she comes down close to it pretty often enough. She cannot read my mind. And the only way a person can know what we're thinking or our deep desires and our concerns and our greatest joys is what? Is when we actually tell them, right? That's why she asks, what's on your mind, you? Tell me, share your thoughts. Verse 11 says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is among him? And this is the analogy that Apostle Paul uses to introduce the only way God's redemptive wisdom can be given. This is what he uses, this analogy. We have learned that man in and of himself, he cannot discover God's truth, right? We understand that. And so he, what happens? He needs to be told. He needs to be told. Man needs God himself to specifically tell a person his thoughts, his plans, his truth, and this is the role of who? No, not of me, not of you. When it comes right down to it, right down to the nitty-gritty, the only person who can tell a person about those plans of God is the Holy Spirit of God. You got that? It's the Holy Spirit of God. He does it, God does it through His Spirit. Why is that? Because the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. That's what we have in our text. So God's wisdom is given, it's told, it's declared by His Spirit to those whom He chooses by using three steps of transmission because God does and has transmitted His mind, His thoughts, His actions, His concerns, His loves, His plans for you, for the world, for you as an individual. He has. He's transmitted those. And he does this in three steps 
He does it by his revelation and by inspiration and by illumination. And we're going to have a look at them briefly one by one. And the first step is God's revelation. And we see this in verses 1 to 10. What is God's revelation about? When we think of God revealing his wisdom to people, we must see this as a, as a declaration, as a revelation, as, as the work of the Holy Spirit, as, as transmitting God's truth, God's mind to us. That's what, this, what revelation means. Now, just so that we can value this amazing revelation that we have, which, by the way, is the Word of God. Just so that we can value it a little bit more, realize that, that down through the ages, God has revealed His mind and thoughts and, and uh, in various ways, right? On certain matters. Heaps of times, if you read your Bible, you will see that God revealed these things through angels. Right? Spoke to angels and angels went down and they spoke and on behalf of God or whatever and, and, um, and they did their work. And even on a more humorous occasion, he, he, uh, he, he, he revealed his plans and his, uh, towards one specific man by speaking through an ass. Remember that? He chose a, chose a stupid ass to speak to this man, Balaam, who refused to obey God, and so God chose to speak via an ass. Well, folks, God does reveal his redemptive wisdom. He does. But he does not reveal that redemptive wisdom via angels or via any other crazy, different, or indirect way. Okay? And when I say crazy, I mean like through an ass. He doesn't do that. You see, God became a whole lot more intimate with us than that. With all mankind, for those who are created in His image. He became a whole lot more intimate with us when He wanted to reveal His redemptive wisdom to us. He only entrusted this truth, His truth, about the salvation of sinners to who? To angels? No way, not good enough. To any other indirect means? No, not good enough. To His Holy Spirit. To His Holy Spirit. He only trusted redemptive truth to His Spirit to move men to write down exactly what's on the very heart of God, but we'll get into that. Because Peter tells us this, the Apostle Peter tells us this in 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy, that's Scripture, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. That's why the Scriptures are so precious to us, folks. That's why the Scriptures are so precious. God values them that He only entrusted His Spirit to communicate them. And so what we have here in the Word of God, in the Bible, is the pure, unadulterated Word of God from God. It's from God Himself. These are God's thoughts, His wisdom. It's only known by the Spirit of God. You know, not known by angels, only known by His Spirit, God's Spirit, Holy Spirit, in a similar way to that our thoughts are only known by our Spirit. But God has revealed His plans, His good news, His wisdom to us in the Scripture. Only one way, and that is through the Spirit of God. You see, the Spirit of God is His agent, can we say. The scriptures themselves, they are the vehicle. 
if you want to think about it like that. They are the vehicle the Spirit of God uses to what? To transmit to us God's revelation. Nothing less would do. And so what we have revealed by the Spirit of God is from the heart and the mind of God himself. You know, that's how intimate, that's how intimate God has been in the revelation of himself. That's why we value the Scriptures. That's why we love the Word of God. That's why we in this church are Bible-centered and we must always remain so. This is our complete authority on every aspect of life and living. Whether it's your job, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your family, whether it's whatever, how you think, whatever, whether it's your, your pastime, whether it's your holiday time, Scriptures are our authority on everything and are fully sufficient. It tells and it reveals and it declares all we need to know about God. The Spirit of God has revealed all we need to know about Him. Not only for bringing people to Christ, to bringing us to Christ, but it tells us about the peace and the joy and the freedom and the reconciliation, the justification and the redemption of sinners like we once were. So the Holy Spirit of God has revealed His wisdom to us in the Scriptures. Now how did He go about that? Really, how did all that come to be? How did it come from the eternal, self-existing God and His Spirit, likened unto the Spirit that we have in ourselves? How did that come about to be revealed? This is where we come to God's inspiration and we read about this in verses 12 to 13. The word inspiration or being inspired or to inspire, it's a sought-after concept these days. And um, it's often attached to people in leadership positions. Well, sometimes key players. Watching a rugby match last night and, you know, how the, uh, the, when the match ends, they talk to the captains, etc. And, um, and there was one key player in this particular team, which I won't mention. And, um, and they won, of course, which I won't mention again. And, um, and he used the word, oh, this key player... He was so inspiring. He inspired the rest of the players to do what they had to do and the excellent job that they did. Same goes for successful companies. And often the success of a company is put down to being inspired by their leaders. But God's inspiration means a whole lot more and is quite different than this, folks. As the Holy Spirit was the triune God's agent in revealing God's redemptive wisdom, the process of the Spirit used to transmit that divine wisdom to our scriptures that we have today is called inspiration. Got that? The process. The Holy Spirit was the agent, but the procedure, the process, is called inspiration. We're told in 2 Timothy 3.16, so listen to this, all scripture, you get that? Not just some of it, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. And so inspired in the context that we have in our, our text today means that every word we have in scripture is God-breathed, that's out of the mouth of God. That's what the word inspired means, especially in that verse uh, 3.16 of 2 Timothy. It's out of the mouth of God. And so the process of God's Spirit transmitting this truth to men and, and down into written form 
so that you and I can read it and, and understand it. This is the amazing thing. It was done over a period of 1,500 years. Get a, get a load of this. Over a period of 1,500 years, 66 different books, 66 different books, and not one word, not one chapter, not one section opposes each other. It tells one beautiful story. You tell me any other book or any other piece of literature, you go back as old and as ancient that, that can compare to this. It doesn't refute what has been said a thousand years ago or 15 years ago when the last text was written. And so this is what was done. It was inspired. To Peter, I'll read that verse again. Peter echoed the same belief. He said, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the, pro- people's, by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So inspiration is why we call the Bible the Word of God. In the words of the Bible, God speaks to us with clarity. He does. It's not a confusing message. He speaks to us with clarity. How we do and why we, how we, how we understand it and why we can needs to be, we need to challenge ourselves with this. Because this message, this inspired message, convicts us and can change us from within to love and obey this message from God. When human reason and intellect all by itself will only reject it as foolishness. This brings us to ask the question, well, why is that? Again, why is that? If I can read this revealed, inspired text, as you say, why can I not understand its message and take it on board and obey it. Why is it? This is where we come to the third step of God's revelation. It's about illumination. We see this in verse 14 to 16. This is how God has transmitted truth to us individually. Where it says in verse 14 of our text in Corinthians, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Okay? For they are folly to him and he is not able to understand it because they are spiritually discerned. Now you may have come across people that have said, well look, I've read the Bible. I've read heaps of it and none of it makes sense. It's just words. It's not relevant to me. I just don't feel it's got any part of my life. It's just an old history book. I was there once didn't make any sense to me. Even though being brought up in a Christian home and being made to read the Bible, read the Bible, didn't make any sense. And, and you, may, you may know people and have heard these, these kind of responses. It doesn't make any sense. It's not for me. Remember the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day? Talk about people knowing what the Word of God said. These guys knew it off by heart. They could quote the whole Torah, five, the first five books of the Bible, off by heart. They knew it back to front and front to back. But you know what? They missed the central truth of recognizing Jesus Christ as the Messiah when he first came to the, when he came to the earth. 
All the Old Testament points to the coming of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice at Calvary. But these intellectuals, they completely missed it. Completely missed it. To them it was a stumbling block. And to others it was foolishness. They did not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they were foolishness. We told that back in verse 14 in chapter 1. This is the natural man, by the way. Where it talks about the natural man, this is the natural man. The person who does not have the Spirit of God illuminating, shining the light on, opening the eyes of the mind to behold truth about God. Understanding the Scripture and seeing truth about God, about our sinfulness, about our need of a Savior, from God's wrath against our sin, about God's redemptive grace and mercy, is only spiritually appraised. You see that word there? Or spiritually discerned. In other words, empowered by the Spirit of God. Illuminated. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We told that in John, he's sent to convict. And so this is the contrast to the natural man who does not have the Spirit of God illuminating this wisdom truth. The true believer in Jesus Christ, the person who is saved, is a person who is spiritual. We see that in verse 15. He's the spiritual one versus the one, versus the, one the natural man. So the person who is a believer, you know what? We've been given new minds. New minds, new hearts. A heart that has been transformed within, whereby now we think differently, we look at the world differently, we, we look at everything in life. We have a totally different worldview than we had when we were saved. And so the Spirit of God is residing in us because that's what happened when we got saved, it resides in us and illuminates truth. And so the Spirit of God first must illuminate truth and regenerate us, okay? I'm a whole lot of believer that... If you want to, it all happens at once, but the Spirit of God regenerates us. In other words, it lights a candle in within us, within our hearts, within our souls, to cause us to see truth and understand truth. And it's only as we understand truth and see truth that we will respond to God in repentance and faith. We cannot come to repentance and faith with our own fallen and depraved heart and mind. Okay, this leaves us in a bit of a quandary, doesn't it? Well, believers, it doesn't leave us in a quandary. We can just say, praise God. But uh, if there's any unsaved here, uh, you, you should be in a quandary because, wow, I'm unsaved and, and I can't do anything to help myself spiritually. Even if I go to seminary or go to Bible college or try and be a better person or give more money to the poor. It will not help me when it comes to God accepting me. It won't. So it leaves us in a bit of a country, wandering. And for the believer, it certainly should be some teaching how we go about directing our evangelism, right? Not only from this church, but also as individuals. See, it's not persuasiveness. That's why as long as I'm here, we'll never be an altar call, as it were, where we sing the same hymn a dozen times over and where your emotions is triggered and everyone has emotions. It's not persuasiveness, it's not clever rhetoric, not philosophical arguments or make them feel good environments that win people for Jesus Christ. No way. It 
It's only the revealed, inspired and illuminated Word of God being transmitted to one person at a time by the Holy Spirit that transform and changes people from sinners to saints. Can I suggest there's an application here that we look and lean to and pray for more and more that the invasive power of the Holy Spirit might break through, smash down stubborn, rebellious and blinded hearts so that he may shine truth and the wisdom of God on their hearts. That he might illuminate them to the truths of the gospel and the wisdom of God. So that they might obey the gospel in repentance and faith. Because that's what it takes for a person to be saved. It's kind of out of our hands, right? But we have responsibility to tell them, to encourage them to look at the truth of God. And we have a mighty responsibility to pray for the Spirit of God to do His work in people's hearts. And I honestly think that's what's failing in so many of our lives. We're good at doing things and hands-on stuff. What about the hard, spiritual, sweaty work of prayer? The other question is, have you been enabled to apply in a wisdom, apply the wisdom of God to your life? Maybe there's someone here who hasn't. That is, do you know and see the need of your salvation because you're a sinner before a holy God? That's a question. You're either going to have to say yes or no to that. Even by saying, hey, I'm sitting in the middle, you're saying no. If you are considering these truths in any way, shape or form, and saying, oh, I've never thought of that. Don't throw that off as some whimsical thought that you could have about anything. It could very well be the Spirit of God beginning to do and wanting to do a regenerating work in your heart. So what do I do about that? Well, you could come and see me, but I'll only tell you basically the gospel. Far better thing for you to do is go home and read your Bible. And if you haven't got one, I'll give you one. Come and see me for that. Start reading your Bible. And as you read or before you read, pray that the Lord will give you understanding of his truth through his Holy Spirit. Okay? May the Holy Spirit have his way in you and all of us even as believers to bring about our salvation and our spiritual growth and ongoing unity in the church. I want to close with this prayer. And it's a prayer that I'm going to read. And it's a prayer that you're not even going to shut your eyes at, but you're going to look up at the screen at. It's a prayer from Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend. It's a song, and it's one chorus or one verse of a song. But as I read these words slowly and carefully, if this is your prayer, pray it sincerely, and then go home and begin to read your Bible. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into my willing soul.
Bring the presence of the risen Lord to renew my heart and make me whole. Cause your word to come alive in me. Give me faith for what I cannot see. Give me passion for your purity. Holy Spirit, breathe new life in me. Holy Spirit, living breath of God. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen.